Hello everyone, welcome to the latest edition of the See Me podcast. Today I am joined by Wendy. Hello Wendy. Hi there. And Dee as well. Hello. How are you both? Good. I'm good too, thanks. It's beautiful, it's so sunny. It is. Lovely. Yeah, it is. It is sunny today. God knows what the weather will be like where and whenever you're listening to this, but right now we are fortunate enough to be looking at blue skies. Um, So, yeah, brilliant. So, today we are going to have an interview featuring one of our partners, Kevin O'Neill, who works uh, for NHS Lanarkshire and has been a long-term partner and supporter of CME over many, many years. And he will be sharing his experiences, just what it's like kind of looking across sharing messages in tackling stigma discrimination and carrying out work in a specific region in Lanarkshire, also working in healthcare as well and what that's been like too. Really interesting interview with Kevin, which is one of the, the, the interviews that features on our Journey of a Social Movement report, which you can see at report.cmescotland.org um, to, to check out everything that Kevin said on there. But it's really interesting and one of the, the first things that I thought was struck me, I guess, and was great to speak to Kevin when we did, was that he's been working with CME since the very beginning. He's been there since CME started in 2002, so nearly two decades now, and really interesting insight as to how mental health in Scotland and attitudes and behaviours around mental health has really changed over that time. And kind of got me thinking about the changes that I'd seen as well. But I guess, sort of, Wendy, for yourself, you'd previously worked in healthcare before being at CME and have been at CME for a few years now as well. What kind of changes have you seen around the way people think and behave towards mental health? I think there's been an incredible shift in Scotland about how mental health is seen and how it's talked about. And some of that's really, really positive. So um, in my experience, some of the work that I did with Kevin, Kevin and I had a partnership way back um, when we were really trying to take forward a wider approach around public mental health. And I think at that time, stigma was certainly part of that wider approach, but it was very much um, about a campaign of raising awareness of what mental health is and some cases about mental illness and understanding more about mental illness and mental health problems. And I think from then we've come a long, long way, both in terms of raising awareness of the issues, but also about raising awareness of the ways in which mental health problems can get in the way of people living fulfilled lives. And I think we know so much more about that now than we did even just a few years ago. And I think we've taken some great steps towards encouraging people to speak out more about mental health and to challenge when they're seeing stigma um, happening or they're experiencing stigma happening. Were there any particular things that happened at the time that sparked this desire for change? I think it's a, a growing awareness that mental health is so important. You know, we all have mental health and at times our mental health fluctuates and at times we have really positive mental health and at other times less so and I think there's a broad appreciation of that and I think um, in the early days there was a lot of myths about mental health and a lot of othering so mental health belonged to other people not 
me or us and actually I think we've come a long way to understanding mental health is is for all of us we all have it and we need to really pay attention to looking after it as much we do our physical health and and well-being definitely Dee have you seen that change to people realizing that we all have mental health or are you still seeing that as something that is a kind of developing understanding I guess I th- no I've seen a huge shift obviously uh, I've not been alive for <laughs> almost just under two decades or just over two decades so um and I I actually haven't you know this is my my first kind of experience um of worked working in that sector um so I, I maybe don't have the same kind of um experience of seeing that change in that setting necessarily but I think overall um even just in our communities and the way that we discuss um our well-being and our mental health and how we speak to each other has has changed hugely over the last few years and I think in part that's got a lot to do with people kind of using digital to to share their experiences and open up and finding new ways of connecting it's kind of broadened out into society so much more now than maybe 20 years ago it was and I think that kind of advancement in, in ways of being able to share voices of lived experience and share stories and you know maybe organizations and um, and things kind of saying like oh this space is actually really really quite important and we need to kind of factor this into to how we're doing things and how we're operating um so yeah just kind of very generally amongst family friends um you know people that I worked with previously I've noticed a huge shift yeah it's, it's definitely a lot more there's still there's still work to do of course there is there's still a lot of work to do but I think um it's been a positive shift certainly in the last last five years yeah I would agree and I've seen really similar from when I was younger and mental health wasn't something that was spoken about or really mentioned at all unless it was in quite a discriminatory way or it was in a stereotypical way in a film or or in the media or something like that to to now the dialogue on it's so open it's in the media all the time and sometimes that is also kind of hard to tell I guess if because I went from position of not working in mental health to then working in mental health, and then it's hard to know when you're in it, is this actually a case that things are changing, or do I just see it every day because I'm at work? But, yeah, I hear it a lot from my friends and my family and, and things like that are changing, and in the last couple of years, I know a few times me and groups of my friends have all sat down and chatted about mental health, and one of my friends who have been experiencing borderline personality disorder for a few years, another one who had kind of disappeared for a while and then when he sort of reconnected with us again said that he'd been struggling really badly with depression but it was great to know that then they could chat to us about that and how they were feeling and because I don't think they would have done beforehand. I think um, something as well that I've noticed hugely is you know although I I haven't uh, worked in mental health but my parents have and so it was always I, I feel especially when you when you look at health and social care settings or you're looking at those kind of environments where there's been this shift as well where it's not such a medicalized discussion around mental health and this is what it is and it involves conditions and illnesses and labeling and you know that kind of discussion that can be quite othering and 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 make you feel quite distanced from it or separate to as we were saying actually it's on a spectrum and we we all go through struggles with our mental health and it's you know sometimes it's up sometimes it's down you might not have a diagnosis of a mental health illness or condition but you we all go through periods where where we struggle and I think that's something that 
you know as I've gotten older and kind of had the, like you were saying had those discussions with friends that barrier between the kind of medicalized side of things and what that looks like and actually just opening up those discussions to to a wider audience has been a lot a, a massive shift yeah Another thing I guess I've noticed is the number of people that talk about mental health and talk about the ways in which they take steps to look after their mental health. So it's that thing about, you know, self-awareness, so appreciating when things are triggering for, say, a mental health problem or triggering for them to to um, have a bit of a, a struggle with their mental health. And I think that what I really appreciate is that people are putting in place all sorts of self-management tools and techniques for being able to protect themselves and look after their well-being as much as they can and certainly a lot of my friends and family and people that I speak to are talking a lot more about that the steps and measures that they take to protect their own mental health and well-being and I think that's really encouraging too. It is it's great to see it just brings it into that more generalised conversation and not being something that has to be dealt with in some other place. It can be an everyday thing. And and Dee, you mentioned there about that we all have mental health and that kind of understanding coming in too. And I guess that's something as well I found quite interesting when speaking to Kevin and one of the projects that he's worked on that CME supported in with the Distress Brief Intervention, which really focuses on compassionate care. Um, and we helped with some training videos of some of the volunteers sharing their experiences of struggling with their mental health and and what that's like. And I think that is, for me, I think that's so important, like compassion within the healthcare service, but compassion in general is just so important. And it is connecting that sort of just human response to someone struggling in the same way you would if they were struggling with a physical health problem or if it's an impact on their mental health which was more generally understood if I'm sort of right in saying that in terms of if someone is grieving or something then people understand that being compassionate to a grieving person is just the natural reaction right thing to do and it's just sort of understanding wider that if someone's struggling for other reasons with their mental health or they have like a long sort of ongoing struggle and maybe have a, a condition that's been diagnosed that that compassion is still just as important like Wendy have you seen that yourself do you think that compassion is a really important thing in sort of a stepping stone for tackling stigma and discrimination as well I think so there's no question for me that compassion is key and a compassionate response I think initially when we started to do work in health and social care as a CME uh, program of work one of the things that we often came up against was this notion of we were talking of giving personalised support, you know, really encouraging that everybody's individual, the circumstances that lead to them having an experience in poor mental health at that particular moment in time um, is is unique to them. And therefore, they, there's a, a unique response given. And we faced a bit of a, a kind of kickback from that, from the point of view of, um, health and social care professionals saying of course we give a compassionate response of course we get you know we reach out and give personalized responses but actually through working with our volunteers and people with lived experience one of the things that was coming through quite clearly 
is that sometimes those interventions were falling short, that they weren't being wholly compassionate, there wasn't a reaching out, there was a bit of trivialising what was going on for people in some situations, that when people did explain what they were experiencing, it maybe wasn't always taken seriously. Um, and that steps weren't taken to put in place the right measures for them, and that's what they were reporting back. So I think the work that we've been doing with DBI is is just an illustration of where when you take a compassionate response, it really, really makes a difference. So understanding what's going on for that person more fully, being able to identify solutions that are right for them and the steps that are right for them. I mean, bearing in mind DBI is about when people are in distress, so it's unfortunate, actually, that there haven't been earlier steps for them to be able to speak out about their mental health before they reach that really critical point of needing a DBI in the first place. And I think one of the things that I'd like to see is more of that earlier intervention where people feel more able to speak about when they are struggling with their mental health at the earliest possible stages so that it can be identified, picked up and they can get the right support in the right way. Definitely. And one thing that you picked on there slightly, Wendy, you picked up on on compassion in the opposite side of that where people are maybe a bit dismissive or knowingly or, or unknowingly. And do you, how much do you think that impacts people? Like if you are dismissed when you say that you're struggling like it's something that it can really put put you back it can make it so much more difficult to reach out and ask for help again and like what do you think yeah massively I mean I I'm, even in you know situations that you know aren't to to do with with mental health if you feel like you need help and, and you ask and you don't receive that help you, you start to doubt yourself and I think that's when you know self-stigma starts to play a huge part you know where you you don't feel that a you're maybe worthy of help that it's bad enough that it needs to be worse before you'll get help and I think you know as we were saying a compassionate response to saying I'm struggling right now I I need help um, prevents you know that problem then potentially coming worse uh, and needing further intervention later down the line so yeah I, I think the the whole the feeling of being dismissed makes people far more less likely um to reach out again and and can and can make things a lot worse further down the line for them and, and for others as well who are who are trying to support them so um yeah I think it's yeah it's a huge it's a huge issue you're right it is so important and you mentioned as well you did that early intervention and the difference that makes and something that Kevin mentions in his interview is how people with mental health problems are dying younger than the general population that it can be sort of 10 to 20 years younger as well and for me there's nothing that highlights the unfairness of stigma and discrimination more than that that is actually costing people's lives and it's in a variety of reasons it could be in healthcare like something that's called diagnostic overshadowing basically that mental health people ignore a physical health problem that you're trying to report because they think it's due with your mental health or it could be right back at the stage of where some early intervention could happen that people aren't encouraged to to get help to get support and it just then leads to their health deteriorating over the course of their life I think it's so important that the messages are out there we try to get them out there but everyone does that if you are struggling to to speak to someone to find someone you trust to speak to your to a GP to get that proper help and support but also on the flip side it's really important that then there is the right help and support there for people when they look for it because it, it's not always the case 
that it is. And I think that's one of the big challenges for Scotland as a country, for us as a programme, for everyone really, is to make that sort of change. I mean, and on that, do you think, either of you, Wendy, I'll start with you, do you think that anyone could truly live a sort of fulfilled life whilst if they have to experience stigma and discrimination? I I think it's fascinating. Um, One of the things I remember is at the time of a policy directive that came out from Scottish Government, I was taking forward a programme towards a mentally flourishing Scotland. And one of the commitments in that plan, now this was about 2009, and one of the commitments in that plan was to address the inequalities experienced by people with mental health problems and mental illness. So we're not talking about a new thing. This data has been around for a long time that shows the stark differences in equality of life and fairness in life from those who experience probably more severe and enduring mental health challenges um, and the inequalities um, across health, across society, social inequalities. Um, so I think there's a, a much bigger job to be done to look at the inequalities that people with lived experience are experiencing and the impact that those inequalities have both in terms of their quality of life and also the levels at which they, you know, the evidence is showing that some people die much earlier. Um, and you know, there's factors that show that's as a result of um, or is... is um, in part response to the mental health issue that they're they're wrestling with and some of that the physical health stuff's really important because one of the things I think we know is that there are many health behaviors that linked with mental ill health can create all sorts of morbidity and mortality changes and differences so things like um, smoking for example there's higher levels of people with mental health problems who smoke alcohol-related harm. Um, Again, there's a correlation between some people who drink more and have mental health problems, and that can have a big impact on their mortality and morbidity. And it's it's not just those with the schizophrenia and psychosis and bipolar and borderline personality disorder, but the interesting thing, I was at a seminar not so long ago that was highlighting the um, level of inequality that's created through depression, you know, and chronic lifelong depression and how that impacts on people's life. But your question was, can you live a quality of life without stigma and discrimination? And I think it depends on what the outcomes are that you're seeking. Personally, I think that stigma just creates barriers, whether it's self-stigma or stigma that you experience from other people. That creates barriers that prohibit any person from being able to achieve the best possible outcomes. So I guess the short answer is no, I don't believe you can. I think we need to do everything we can within our power and gift to try to challenge the stigma that people experience and in particular the unfair disadvantages that arise as a result of mental health problems and people living with mental health problems. So I think we've still got a big job to do in respect of both of those things. And do you for yourself, like the stat that I mentioned earlier there around that people can die up to 20 years younger. I mean, what what did you think when you first heard that? I genuinely was quite shocked because I think, and, and, you know, again, having not worked 
um, in mental health previously that that was I maybe didn't always make that connection between mental 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 I didn't always make that connection um, between mental and physical health in the you know one impacts on the other whether you know you 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 struggle with your mental health and it impacts on your physical or you have a, a you know a long-standing physical problem that affects your ability and your mobility to get out and about and meet people and um it isolates you so it is it is quite a, a shocking thing to hear because I don't think it's always something that people would associate with mental health and if they do it's it's maybe in in quite a negative context so you know whether they're they're thinking oh it's you know the completion of suiciders without actually realizing that it's um a kind of intersectional thing and that it, the the mental and the physical aspects all tie in together and they're just as important as one another um so that that was quite a, an eye opening thing for me to realize i think when when i first started working in this area that you know that there needs to be a, a parity between mental and physical health because they do impact on each other so much. I think the other factor that I came across um, a while back is is that the cause and consequential relationship, so physical health conditions leading to mental health problems and, you know, that, that impacting on a person's quality of life but equally mental health problems creating physical health issues and challenges. So it's a you know, it's the, the kind of double edged sword that you can't um consider one without the other. I think that's what's happened in the past is there's maybe been an over focus in one and as you say, uh, Nick, the diagnostic overshadowing where one thing isn't maybe taken into consideration as fully as the other but you know we're all people we all experience physical and mental health so it's important more and more that that compassionate response is about the whole person and I guess the, the other thing about the inequalities for people experiencing mental ill health I mean the the circumstances that lead to that are very very complex I talked a little bit about um behaviors and you know lifestyle choices etc but there's all sorts of other factors like medication that people are required to take or it's suggested they take it to alleviate some of the mental health challenges that they're experiencing and that having a direct effect on their physical health either through weight gain or um, lethargy or you know there's a whole range of complications around um it's a complex picture really to address this and I guess what I would really encourage is that we take more of a concerted effort to look at it to say you know what can we do because we can't keep continuing to rehearse that there's such a stark inequality and then not do something about it. I guess that's why well hopefully Kevin's interview will be of, of real interest because uh, he's someone who has led in doing lots of change and is passionate about about having a, a huge impact in an area that he has influence in. Um, so, yeah, we'll play that in now. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is Kevin O'Neill. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the work that you've done with CME over the years? Yeah. In Lanarkshire, since the year 2000, I've been the public health lead for, for mental health improvement. And in the early, the early 2000s, the Programme for Mental Health and Improvement, the National Programme for Mental Health and Wellbeing, was established and it had three key components. One was the Scottish Recovery Network, a focus on recovery. The other was CME and the work around stigma and discrimination and Choose Life, 
the work around about suicide prevention. And working in public mental health at the time was a very empowering experience. To feel that for the first time we had a substantial national focus on mental health improvement um, and brought uh, a weight and priority to it and structure to it. And importantly brought uh, a, a national support network, a community that brought us together for a common purpose um, with a supportive infrastructure um, and, and see me being a core part of that. As soon as it came to being, we welcomed it with open arms and from there at every opportunity have looked to link nationally and act locally to make best use of all the supportive infrastructure that a national organisation that CB brings. So what is it that you've seen that you've thought, this is what I want to change, this is the type of stigma discrimination that I want to make a difference with? Well, there's two parts to it. I think, personally, I, I think I am and, and certainly have been haunted. When you look at the data and the information research that tells us that people with a severe mental health problem can die 10 to 15 younger years younger than people that don't. When you look at the testimonies and the research around about the number of people who have a mental health problem who are unemployed, the number of people who feel isolated and lonely, who feel excluded, um, who feel they're denied um, employment opportunities. And I think at its worst, when you listen to people, and I've often listened to people and they talk about the self-stigma, sometimes the shame they experience about their own mental health problem, and that being a barrier to asking for help when, 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 when people feel they require that help. And I think we can confidently say that stigma and discrimination does play a very important part, unfortunately, in people taking their own lives. And I think for me, I've always been haunted with the injustice um, around about that. But also, that injustice has, has, has brought fuel to my work with a commitment and a passion to want to do something about that. And in working again with CME, it gives us an opportunity to do that as part of a broader community and a broader movement, but with structure and with science and with understanding behind it. But also professionally, as the public health lead for Lanarkshire, that I was tasked with developing our mental health improvement strategy, uh, putting that together, implementing that, and where we can, looking to evaluate its impact. And whether we're talking about preventing mental health problems where we're talking about promoting mental health and well-being, where we're talking about improving the quality of life for those with mental health problems, then I believe we can't do any of that without having a constant focus on the impact of stigma discrimination, which makes, which makes it difficult. If we don't address it, it makes it difficult for people having natural conversations in natural settings around mental health, including what are the things we can do to look after our own mental health, but also at an early stage feeling we can be open about our mental health problems knowing that if we do that, it's, uh, people were likely to receive the right level of support and understanding um, that's required. And if it's talked to people, people feel comfortable having those conversations. So for me, across that broad spectrum, a focus on stigma and discrimination has had to be at the core of all those elements. Definitely. You mentioned in the kind of first couple of things there about how so you being the lead in, in Lanarkshire and working with a national partner in See Me, do you feel like you are kind of working as, when you work with See Me, as part of a wider movement? I feel working with See Me, I'm working as part of a wider movement, um, a, a broader community, eh, often with opportunities to come together, 
at various different stages to be sharing our experiences but also listening to the experiences of others and quite often in roles um, such as the one that I previously had before going on to comment to the Distress Brief Intervention Programme they can feel quite isolated at times um, where your, your peers are often uh, national colleagues so I think for me it, it, it's the consistency in the messaging and the consistency in understanding around what's effective in challenging stigma and discrimination and coming and working alongside others to be supported to be supported at times when resources are tight to make best use of all the knowledge and supports that are out there to help to um, make whatever your programme is locally stronger and better and more connected. What has been most impactful has been how the message that Simi has brought has been a very powerful message. I, right from the outset, Simi, I'm a person, not a label. Right through to the present, it's okay not to be okay. I think it's those personal messages that people can really relate to. Um, often, I think for any organisation, when you start to talk about mental health, it's often very difficult to know around that big issue, where do you practically start? And I think what CME does, because of how natural and, and how human a message it is, and because on the back of that, there are the programmes, workplace programmes, and the school-based programmes, and the community-based programmes, um, all underpinned by the importance of the lived experience, that it does really empower a, a, a community and a local movement such as Stigma Free Lanarkshire to then work in a very considered and supportive but empowered way um, in all those various different settings. So for me, the most powerful thing has been the consistency and the human aspect of the message, the lived experience and the practical supports that enable us to go into schools, go into workplace, go into communities with that um, strong message that kind of underpins it. And I think in Lanarkshire, one of the things through the, the CB partnership and now Stigma Free Lanarkshire has been right at the heart of it. What's your role been in that kind of link with with NHS, with Stigma Free Lanarkshire, with CME and kind of triangulating that? Yeah. My role in Stigma Free Lanarkshire um, goes back really to being the public mental health lead going back to uh, the early 2000s. And when the most recent um, director for CME uh, came to post, very they were, CME were very interested to work with us to consolidate all the work that we had previously done, but work with us to have a much more strategic focus to some of the, the work we were undertaking, and with a greater eye to trying to look at what impact and what outcomes we're looking to achieve across what was a shared agenda. So for CBE, the priorities are health and social care, uh, children and young people in education, workplace. Those were and are the same priorities for Lanarkshire. So a chance to um, bring our collective assets together, bearing from this, the support at the centre and the access to the, the local workplaces and the local school and the local communities to be able to take all of that into those, those places and be testing them and to be developing them, and be evaluating them, and looking at making a real difference in the experience 
of stigma and discrimination that, that people are experiencing within those settings. It was the first time we brought joint resources together to create a post which is a stigma free Lanarkshire coordinator and that's been so important too because previously we were doing that all as part of our additional work and if this is about creating a movement part of the challenge is the more of a movement you create there's more people you have to speak to having a national part having a national partner having anti-stigma work and see me leading it as a national priority in the mental health strategy absolutely as a starting point gives a profile to the work which recognises this work is really really important then working with CME to ensure that people like myself and others are able to when we have an opportunity make a clear case of why this work is really important definitely adds value and confidence to the role of those who are key facilitators within the local communities in which they serve Brilliant. Um, what have you then over the last kind of few years specifically been working on that has been working in partnership with CME? Yeah, so more recently and since early 2017 I've uh, been on from the my role as public health lead for Lanarkshire to the Distress Brief Intervention um, Programme as the National Programme um, Manager responsible for coordinating and programme managing all aspects of the Scottish Government's Distress Brief Intervention Programme to ensure that um, we achieve our objectives in testing this way of working which is about delivering connected compassion support to people who are presenting in distress. Brilliant. And then what's the, the work that, see, that you've done with CME as part of that or how CME influenced that work? Yeah. So the main, the main role for the Distress Brief Intervention is to be testing a new way of working, which is working with frontline services. So there's two levels to distress brief intervention. One is about delivering a compassionate support to those who are presenting distress at the front line. And for those who will benefit from distress brief intervention, be able to refer to a new service, which is the distress brief intervention level two. Third sector services who contact the person within 24 hours and work with the person for up to 14 days and some instances beyond 14 days, if that's what the person requires take them to make sense of the situation, the overwhelming situation they're in and to help them make immediate plans and take first steps to start to be able to address that. So it has compassion at the absolute heart of it. A sensitivity to the person's distress, valuing the person, but with a motivation, courage and wisdom to do something about it, with an action focused to be able to work on that. And I think that collaborative infrastructure we've created with a focus on collective action has become um, very, very important. But there's a strong possibility that DBI could support influencing, reducing the stigma and discrimination associate, associated with seeking help for distress and receiving support for distress. And therefore, right at the outset, when I said that, I thought, I need to speak to CB. Because obviously my experience told me that we've got a great deal to learn from CB and to work with CB and to value seeing as a critical friend to ensure that as we build this connected compassion support, as we speak to those frontline services and police, ambulance service, emergency departments and primary care, that we do so understanding every opportunity we have to also think about how we impact on the experience of stigma and discrimination that people may be experiencing. Do you think that basically tackling stigma and discrimination 
is has to be in everything that uh, addresses someone's health needs or our mental health if they're going to get the best possible outcomes. Yeah, I think we have to recognise that stigma discrimination does exist and that people still experience stigma discrimination in a wide range of settings and whilst the reason for that I think are multifactorial so they can be structural, they can be organisational um, they can be to do with attitudes and behaviours but I think that we have to be honest about thinking about the part that stigma discrimination plays in that relationship the part that stigma and discrimination plays in how difficult it can be sometimes for people coming and asking for help and how by frontline services thinking very carefully and understanding the importance of compassion, the importance of empathy, the importance of listening and supporting a person to feel valued has in enabling that person to feel that they have had a positive experience of compassion. So I believe what we've seen is by supporting our staff to understand the importance of empathy and understanding the person's distress and giving time to be able to do that. The promise of contact within 24 hours and equip our frontline staff to be able to do that. Then what we're doing is we're making it easier for our staff to be compassionate and we're making it easier for people to experience compassion. So we have to take a multi-layer approach to it and we're absolutely informed by CME about the importance of how we need to embed elements of stigma and discrimination contained within that. And so, for instance, our colleagues in CME have reviewed our training programmes produced by the University of Glasgow to make sure that we adequately give focus on issues around stigma and discrimination, both in terms of how people may present um, fearful discrimination or experiencing self-stigma, but also how we respond and understand to that. Furthermore, our colleagues in CME have understood that our training should really have had and, and will have more of a lived experience dimension to it. So our colleagues at CME have supported us and worked with us to produce some um, real good quality uh, films where people are talking about their experience of presenting frontline services in distress to be embedded as standard within our core training. Our colleagues at CME have helped us to develop scenarios around how we can bring scenarios based learning to the programmes to support staff to those practical skills, to be having those conversations with people, to avoid stigma discrimination but also understand um, understand those elements. In the videos, for instance, one of the things that's really struck a lot of people that I think many of us hadn't really reflected upon was uh, one person talking about their story and how important it was for our colleagues in the front line to remember that when that person comes for support, you may be the only person they come to that day, that week, that month or that year. And the potential of getting that right is so incredibly powerful. But the potential of getting it wrong is also so incredibly powerful. And I think that articulated from someone who'd experienced, uh, lived experience, really struck all of us working in DBI around the importance of getting this type of support, not just DBI, but that support generally, that no matter how busy we are, how difficult things are, that this might be our only opportunity to make a difference in making sure we're ready. The services are ready, the systems are ready, the organisation is ready, the connectivity is there to really make that difference in a way that impacts upon that person's life. From the, from the, the feedback from those who have received DBI support and they were asked 
what you may have done if you had not received the DBI support, then a substantial number, or, or, or a number, say that they may have resorted to suicidal behaviour, um, drew the Dentum report and the evaluation team to conclude that it appears that DBI is saving lives. Um, and for me, that's incredibly powerful. So we need to understand more about it. I think DBI can continue to improve. I'm really comfortable with that and will continue to improve through working with organisations that see me. But I think where we are with it, I think we can say that DBI changes lives and it saves lives. Over the years and all this work that you've done, these some great examples of it. Like are you are you proud of the of the difference that you've made in challenging super discrimination? Um Everyone hates when I ask this question. Well, I think it's hard to be proud when you know there's still so much work to be done. I think I think we are in a better place of understanding. I think we understand more about the importance of it. We understand more about the importance of getting it right and the impact of, of getting it wrong. Um, we're in a better position because I think CME nationally are more informed about what works. And I think uh, are much more positioned to be able to support programmes such as the Stress Brief Intervention to impact upon DBI. I'm inspired and moved when I hear those 3,500 people who have come through DBI so far talk about the high levels of compassion that they've experienced both at level 1 and level 2 and that it's impacting upon their lives and in some instances saving lives. So I'm moved uh, and I'm delighted for our frontline colleagues and all those involved in DBI and our colleagues in CME who have all worked together to make that happen to see that all of that efforts is making a big difference. So I'm inspired, I'm moved, I'm motivated to keep doing it and I'm motivated to keep improving it. So I would say I'm more moved and inspired than proud at this stage. Okay, so that was Kevin and a really interesting interview on some of the impacts that, that his work's had over the years and in healthcare and, and so much of that really comes down to within healthcare and people being treated fairly is down to people's rights and and what they should really deserve to to have in a way of being treated and to be treated um with equality um and also with equity when it matters as well and rights is an area that CME has worked in for for a long time and we released uh, a few years ago rights for life which was a declaration of rights for people with mental health problems in Scotland and, and what they wanted to have and and something that we're still working to achieve and, and different ways of working in human rights within within the healthcare sector with also within within workplaces and with education things like that as well and, and Wendy for yourself see what what do you see as the role of, of rights in making a difference in this area? I think that um, the human rights agenda has been considered quite considerably in health and social care over the last wee while. Um, and CME's been part of a collaborative that's really looking to um, promote the right to health, and that would include physical and mental health. So, um, and we've been working alongside other agencies really to try to ensure that those who are providing services for people understand that it should be done in a human rights based way. 
and equally um, that those who are engaging with services for mental or physical health know how to claim that right. So um, I think increasingly that's one of the things that we've got to be considering is how do we create um, healthcare support and services in ways that's much more human rights based. Um, and certainly CME's really keen to continue to work in the partnership to support that to, to be taken forward. Yeah, totally agree with that, Wendy. Um, so thanks very much, guys, for chatting today. And again, if you want to find out more about the journey of the social movement, then check out report.cmescotland.org um, and you can find out all about the journey that our partners and our volunteers have been on in challenging stigma and discrimination across Scotland over the last five years and how they've really been making a difference and perhaps see how you could make a difference yourself as well. Um, so thank you very much, Wendy and Dee, for chatting today. Thank, thank you very you. much. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. 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 Cheers. Bye.